When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we have to fast forward through a story about Joseph and his 10 brothers, 11 brothers, actually, because another one shows up in the story, and about the places we are sent, the places we find ourselves that are narrow and confining and limited and what God is telling us in those places. Good to be here with you today and God bless. I don't know if you've ever experienced an echo in your life, an echo from an earlier time that you were Um, where you returned to the scene of the crime or the scene of the disaster or the scene of the moment where your life changed dramatically. And that echo that came to you many years later took you right back there. It could be through hearing a song that you hadn't heard in a long time or seeing a movie or some other piece of art or a sunset, or a trip, or whatever it was that took you back to that place where you had that memory, the memory of the time where something dramatically changed in your life. Maybe a memory, or maybe it took you back to a time where you failed, where you did one of those things that you uh, ought not to have done, or you had left undone something that you ought to have done. I think in life we have these moments where we are taken back through time, back almost as if it was yesterday. And that's what happens to these brothers, these brothers of Joseph. As they are standing there before their father, the patriarch of the clan, he is there telling them that they are running out of food again. They're running out of grain and they need more. The famine is so severe, nothing is growing. There's only a few things that are still alive to eat, and that is running into short supply. They have to go back to Egypt. And this time, even though the brothers protest and say, it's not going to go so well, if we go back there, bad things will happen, Um, Jacob urges them to go back. And he says to them, take some presents from the land. Take some resin, which is probably frankincense and and myrrh, honey, gum, pistachio nuts, almonds, and even double the money that they took last time. They're that desperate. And here we have an echo from that Midianite caravan that came through when Joseph was in the pit and his 10 brothers, the ones standing before Jacob, when they were deciding what to do with him, there comes this caravan full of a load of this same stuff, honey, gum, resin, pistachios, almonds. That's what the caravan was carrying that took their brother to Egypt to be enslaved and probably to die for all they knew. And so this echo comes back to them, this memory They are brought back to the scene of their crime. 
the scene of their anger, the scene of their impulsive decision, the scene of the moment where they tried to save themselves from the tyranny or what they felt was the tyranny of their brother Joseph. They weren't so much trying to hurt him as they were only thinking of themselves, only thinking of the way for them to be in favor with their father, to get his attention when they seemed to be so neglected. The thing that they did was horrible, horrific, unthinkable, and yet they did it. And they are now returning in their memory to that time. These are hard moments for humans when we are brought back to those moments, and we've all had them. Maybe not as egregious and as terrible as what these brothers have done, but their memories take them back. And here again, they are given this opportunity to remember by having to bring their brother Benjamin back to Egypt, just as they sold their brother Joseph, the son of Rachel, the as they are children of Leah, Jacob's other wife. Um, now they are instructed, even encouraged, to bring J- Benjamin, who might disappear as well. And now these ten brothers are faced with another daunting proposition that they might have to lie to their father again about Benjamin, or they might have to tell him the truth. It's almost as if they are being channeled by an unseen hand, that they are being directed into this place that is so narrow and so confining and that, that they can't escape from, that they are forced to face what they've done. God brings us to these places in life, and they are hard places to be in. They are narrow places to be in. Jesus said that broad is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. The way to eternal life is narrow, and it is often in these narrow valleys and mountain passes and confines and narrow places of our life that we really see what has happened to us, and we really see who we are, and we face who we are. And that is the opportunity where we ha- that we have to repent. That is the moment we have to turn around. That's what Lent is all about, recognizing those moments in our life and saying, I'm ready to turn around. I am not that person anymore. I don't want to be that person ever again. This is the opportunity that God gives us in these very narrow places of our lives. And this is also an act of love from God, an act of grace, showing them that there is a way out. It's a narrow way. It's a difficult way. It's going to involve moments of uncomfortableness and discomfort and pain and suffering. It's going to be hard and difficult, but it is the way to eternal life. It is the only way out for these 10 brothers, and they have to face it. They have to go back, and they do go back. We won't be meeting tomorrow, um, and we won't be doing morning prayer together on Sunday. So the drama continues for the next couple chapters. Uh, It's almost as if God is trying to show us in minute detail 
that this is the pattern of perhaps our lives as well. These stories are here because they resonate with so many people. And the story that goes back and forth between these ten brothers and Benjamin, the other brother, and Joseph, the other brother, goes all the way through these dramatic twists and turns where these brothers again and again and again have opportunities to face what they did. The thing that they thought they could hide forever. The fact that they had done this to their brother. They are facing it again and again. And I think it's all the way... um, I think it's all the way to verse to chapter 45. And we, we've been tracking the story from chapter 42 or so. That's when the brothers first decide that they need to go to Egypt, all the way to chapter 45. And these are long chapters, lots of things happening. And finally, in chapter 45, um, the brothers, when they have, are faced with what they have done over and over and over again, Chapter 45 begins by saying, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Send everyone away from me. Send everyone away from me. And no one stayed with him. All his attendants and soldiers left him. And there Joseph is left alone with his brothers. And he weeps loudly so that the Egyptians outside the doors hear it. They hear him weeping. Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And this is the moment of realization. He says, come closer to me. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He tells them the truth. The truth doesn't change. When people hurt us and abuse us and misuse us, take advantage of us, the truth of what they did never changes. And we should never change that truth. We should always tell the truth about what happened to us. But also, he says, God, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God sent me to Egypt to save people. And God used your wicked actions, he says, to do that. And this is the deeper understanding of all the things that happen to people on this planet, things that happen to us that God is working for good. This is hard to believe in times of hardship, trial, abuse, neglect, all those things that we suffer. It is hard to believe that. And Joseph didn't believe that right away. It took him a lifetime to get there. But here he is saying this to his brothers. And suddenly we see a picture of reconciliation, a picture of forgiveness. Joseph kissing his brothers, weeping on them, his brothers weeping. There is sorrow. There is repentance. There is a change of heart, a change of mind. But that change started a long time ago when these brothers had to actually face what they had done. God is always giving opportunities for repentance. So if you find yourself in a narrow place today, maybe open your mind and heart to what God is saying to you. I don't know what God is saying to you. God says different things to different people. He says different things to Joseph, different things to his brothers. But the overall message is the same. Here's an opportunity to turn back to God. Here's an opportunity to come home. Here's an opportunity to open your heart to God's love. Amen. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. O Lord, show thy mercy upon us, and grant us thy salvation. Endue thy ministers with righteousness, and make thy chosen people joyful. Give peace, O Lord, in all the world, for only in thee can we live in safety. Lord, keep this nation under thy care, and guide us in the way of justice and truth. Let thy way be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let not the needy, O Lord, be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor be taken away. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and sustain us with thy Holy Spirit. Today's March 18th, the feast day of Cyril of Jerusalem. He was a liturgist, a catechist, and a bishop. I know what the last one is, and I'm not always sure what the first two are. Born in Jerusalem in 315 in the Roman Empire, Cyril became a bishop of that city somewhere around 349. So if you do the math on that, he was like, I don't know, in his 20s, I think. In the course of a political and ecclesiastical disputes, he was banished and restored three times. So being banished and restored three times is uh, the secret to Cyril's success, apparently. He's the only one, um, he is the one we have to thank for the development of catechetal instruction. That's always a fun word and liturgical observances through Lent and Holy Week. Um, his, he wrote a book, the Catechetal Lectures on the Christian Faith, given before Easter to candidates for baptism, written sometime around 348 and 350. And uh, in, this, in these lectures, he talks about learning the Apostles' Creed, the tenets of the Creed that we just read a few minutes ago, and all these lectures um, were used over and over again by Cyril and his successors, so much so that they became their own curriculum for preparing people for baptism. Um, for In the earliest days of Christianity, baptism was immediate. It was something that people would do the same day they heard the story of Jesus, and they were invited to go into the waters of baptism. We can see this over and over again in the book of Acts. And their whole households were baptized, not just... Um, the one or two adults who were believing, but everybody that they had authority over in their households were often baptized. And in this um, rapid baptism, when the Roman Empire became officially Christian in the 300s, uh, and people, um, and it was harder to kind of know who um, was sincerely believing in Jesus and who just wanted to sort of fit in and get ahead in life, they started to put more requirements on baptism, sometimes a two- or three-year process before you could get baptized, um, which um, may have worked for their time um, and, it, and was probably a good thing for their moment and time to weed out those who were um, perhaps not as sincere uh, or something like that. 
In times where Christianity is the dominant religion, people are always trying to figure out who is uh, doing country club religion, just doing it to sort of fit into the larger culture, and who is really following Jesus, the narrow way of Jesus. Um, I think in our post-Christian era that we live in now, where many people, um, you know, Pflugerville's got at least 100,000 people living in it, and probably about 5,000 maybe somewhere around there attending churches on Sundays. That's a lot of people not going to church on Sundays. So um, we think about that, that there's a lot of people that are not feeling the need to practice just Christianity to get by or just Christianity or joining a church and attending one just to fit in and get, have a, keep a job or fit into a community or something. That is no longer necessary in modern American life to, um, to function in society. You don't need to attend a church every Sunday. And so we live in a time that is more like the, when the book of Acts, um, when the book of Acts was, uh, was uh, being written, where uh, we have people today that need to be baptized right away and don't need three years of uh, instruction. Um, I do believe we need to be taught and um, these catechetical, catechetical lectures are still relevant, um, partly because of a woman, not because of Cyril, a man, but because of a woman named Egeria. Egeria was a, a pilgrim and nun from somewhere near France, somewhere around there, who traveled to Jerusalem with great enthusiasm and described what it was like to be there for Easter weekend to be there on Maundy Thursday, to be there on Good Friday, to be there on Holy Saturday, to be there on Easter Sunday and East, the Easter Vigil. It is from Egeria that we have the, the very descriptive account of the Easter Vigil that we have in our prayer book today. Um, and this is where the newly baptized would then uh, be baptized, or the, new, the newly catechized catechumens, catechumens would be um, baptized there at the Easter Vigil. So this very elaborate system that Cyril did out of necessity, um, we can think of today, what do we need to do to invite people into the larger story of Jesus? And what are um, ways we're doing that? Uh, And we can see that this pattern of keeping Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday and going through the week, is something that these very early Christians did in in the 300s AD. So not very long after Jesus was resurrected. Um, so that's why we're talking about Cyril today. Um, he was an encourager of pilgrimages. That being based in Jerusalem, he was able to invite Christians from all over uh, the Roman Empire to come and participate in worship, in worship there. Um, and it is his writings that we used in the, in the liturgical movement in the 1960s to develop the prayer book that we have today. Let us pray. Strengthen, O God, thy church and the sacraments of thy grace, that we, in union with the teaching and prayers of thy servant Cyril of Jerusalem, may enter more fully into the paschal mysteries for Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Prayer Collect for Fridays. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, 
through the same thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, who did stretch out thine arms of love on the hardwood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of thy saving embrace, so clothe us in thy spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know thee to the knowledge and love of thee, for the honor of thy name. Amen.